Father, we do just thank you so much for this time. Uh, we thank you that we can come and worship you today. Thank you for everybody that's gathered here. God, how kind you are to us, that you would save us, that you would send your Son to die for our sin, that which separated us from you, that you took the initiative and that you came and that you brought reconciliation. Thank you for that. God, I just pray that everything that's going on in our heads and our minds of, of this week, God, that you would help us to focus upon what you have to say. I ask that you would, that you would speak today, God, and where I may speak in error, God, I pray that you um, would guard people's hearts. And where I speak truly, I pray that you would open it up to them and that they would come awake. So God, I, I ask as we look at the fall today that you would help us to come awake and alive to the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing today in a series that started a month or so ago. Uh, we recently titled that series the We Believe series. It's probably going to take us into February or so of this next year. So we're going to be here for a little while talking about what we believe. If you're new here um, or if you're wondering why, why we, we would be going through a series for so long on various beliefs, various doctrines, the main reason is because the elders, because uh, Pastor Bob, Brad, and Ted felt that we should be preaching through the new statement of faith that along with the new bylaws has been presented to us as a local church in order to replace the old ones. So that's one of the main practical reasons for this series. That's why we're doing it in this season as, as a church is to focus in on those particular doctrines and beliefs. But I think there are a few other important reasons for a series like this. If you look at the statement of faith in a big old document and you wonder, you know, why, why is this that, that important? Why is it that important? I think that there's a couple other reasons. Sound doctrine is an act of love. And I wonder if we really believe that that's true. Do we believe that sound doctrine is an act of, of love? I think at times in our culture, at times in the Christian church, we can treat doctrine as unnecessary. We can treat it as actually unloving, that it can be an obstacle to relationship, but that is not true. We don't argue that if we set up fences around property, that somehow that's unloving to your family. Uh, you put up fences. You put up fences to protect your animals, maybe your fields, to protect your family. And to ignore them or to just assume that the fences are there and not look at them, to assume that they're in place without giving attention to them is actually unloving. And it's unloving because wolves like to eat sheep, because Satan wants to devour our faith, because sheep like to wander. They like to wander off. There's also a practical question. Church isn't mainly a place where we learn what to do. This is not a place where we come on Sundays to try to figure out, what do I got to do next week? What are the things I need to do? It's a place where we go to learn what to believe. We come here to learn what do we need to believe. And so when we're preaching the statement of faith, when we're preaching doctrine and truth, we're rejecting the thought that beliefs are of little value to everyday life. We are saying that belief and practice is connected. They're not disconnected. So, again, why? Why spend so many weeks on this? Why, why um, have the elders and some of the young guys spent so long on this document? And it isn't just about ratifying a statement of faith as a community of believers. It's because beliefs actually shape what we do. They shape what we do. What you believe affects what you do, it affects how you live. The first human sin, the first human sin started with unbelief. It started with not believing that what God had said was true. And then, practically, grab the fruit, take the bite. But I think it's also important to say that no one is saying that the statement of faith is perfect. No one is saying that. Only, only this is perfect. Only God's word to us is perfect. Any kind of church confession throughout history, any statements on a church's website, 
is put together by flawed people. It's put together by flawed people. And so no one is saying, you've got to accept every single sentence in that document to be a Christian. That's not what is being said. That is not what's being said at all. We don't receive a document to become a Christian. We receive the person of Jesus. We receive all that Jesus Christ has done for us, and that's what makes us Christians. So, I just wanted to set that up that way. Um, we're going to look at the fall of man today. Uh, I didn't know I was going to be preaching on this till, till last week. We're only going to scratch the surface here. Um, I don't want to rehearse what Bob said last week, but the focus last week was on the fact that God has made man in his own image. God has made men and women in his image. And the only thing I really want us to focus on from that and to emphasize and reemphasize is that we were not, human beings were not originally created fallen. That is not the way it started. Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, it establishes that Adam and Eve were created good. They were created good. The whole world was created good. That rhythm in the first chapter, it was good, very good, over and over and over again. So for all the negative things that I'm going to say a bit later about the sinful nature of human beings, there's, there's this wonderful reality that God has made men and women. Men, men and women, how do you say that? Man and woman. That God has made every race. That God has made every color. That God has made born people. He's made unborn people. He's made people with special needs, without special needs. And every single person has incalculable value and worth because they have been created in the image of God. And that's why sins like sexism, sins like racism, sins like treating special needs um, as in a, a belittling way, um, that's why sins like abortion are so evil because they cut against the image of God. So for all the sin that we're going to look at today, don't forget that sinners are still image bearers of God. Still image bearers of God. Distorted image bearers, but image bearers nonetheless. The first main heading or main point that I want us to see today is what the Bible says, what the Bible says about the impact of the fall of Adam upon unbelieving, keyword, upon unbelieving humanity's identity and relationship with God. What the biblical account is about the relationship of unbelieving humanity to God and with God and who they are in their very identity. The way we relate to God, the way we are when we were born into this world. That's what I want to look at. And if you didn't see the fall's impact in the Bible this week, hopefully we'll see it soon, but you saw it in your life. You saw the impact of the fall in your life this week. I can guarantee you that. You felt the, the sinful effects of sin in your own heart. You felt it in your marriage. You felt it in your parenting. You saw it in your kids. You saw it in the back row tonight, or today, of uh, my kids. Um, <laughs> you, you experienced it. You experienced it in your bodies, some of us more than others, in our brains, our bones. Our bodies are affected by the fall of man. We heard it in, in headlines of the news, whatever your favorite news channel is. You saw it there. You read it. Maybe you get on the Lost Coast Outpost occasionally and you look at the local news and then you read the comments. You definitely saw it in the comment section of the Lost Coast Outpost. Sin is obvious. Sin is absolutely obvious. G.K. Chesterton said that sin is a fact as practical as potatoes. Do you want to get practical today? This is practical. Fact as practical as potatoes. And that original sin, he said, is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proven. Some say that it's the only thing that's empirically viable. The fall of man. Original sin. So today, uh, it's going to kind of be a bounce house sermon, I think. We're going to be all over the place. But we're going to start with Genesis 3. And what we find in this historical retelling, and that's important, this is history. This isn't myth. I know Bob has really established that. This historical retelling of the beginning of humanity is that in chapter 3, there's a great disruption that takes place in the world between chapters 1 and 2, and then once chapter 3 hits. There's a massive shift. 
So we're going to look at that. We'll start with two verses in chapter 2. Two verses in chapter 2. This is verses 15 and 16. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Stop for a second. Every tree. Everything is open to you. Everything is good. I have made everything good. You can eat of all of it. That part's my fill-in. Now back to the Bible. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you were dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for man and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. One of the things I want us to notice is how the fall disrupts relationships. It disrupts relationships. Every single relationship. The relationship of God to humanity, men and women to one another, men and women to themselves in their inner life, in their soul, and the relationship of humanity to the world and the earth has radically changed. For the sake of time, though, we're only going to focus on one of them, the relationship of God to man and man to God. The relationship of God to man and man to God. We are relational beings. And the reason we are is because God is. The reason we're relational beings is because God is, and he made us to image him. God, as Levi showed us the other day, God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
This doctrine, of course, is complicated, a little bit heady, beyond us. But the point is that God is a personal and relational being in himself before any human gets on the scene. All of the created universe, then, is built relationally. It's meant to function in a relational context. So our view of God frames our view of sin. We have to see God to see sin. And the Holy Spirit has to reveal this to us. He has to show this to us. Sometimes it's hard for us to to feel that because we depersonalize God. We treat God as a concept, just something to be talked about. Again, as just some stuff on a document, not as the person that he is. And Genesis 3 is framed in the sad loss of the presence of the living God with man. So what we find scattered throughout this chapter is that the result of Adam's sin is that the fellowship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed before sin has been severed. It's been broken. Sin breaks the vertical relationship that we have with God. It breaks what they enjoyed with Him. And so paradise wasn't just because this is a great garden. Man, we get to eat all kinds of awesome fruit. We get, to, we get to work, and we get to work without toil, without a bunch of thorns and thistles. We have unashamed nakedness, and we have untainted. We have fellowship with God that's perfect, that's whole, that isn't hindered. But paradise is lost when this, this unbroken fellowship with God gets forfeited by sin. So sin at its very core is a direct offense against the relational God of the universe. It's actually a personal assault on God. It's an assault on his character. Adam and Eve, through the temptation of the serpent, did not believe what God had said. They began to question him. Sin, said one theologian, is cosmic treason. It's treason, and it's treason because God is sovereign. God is the sovereign creator. I know Bob really spoke of that several weeks ago, and that all of our allegiance is owed to God. And so sin occurs in the garden when God's, kind of a big word, vice-regents, basically God's under-sovereigns, God created them to be royal, to rule and to keep the earth. And when, when God's image-bearers say no, we say no to the sovereign. Their allegiance begins to shift. It, it moves from the rule of God and the rule of the world in God's design to these sinful desires that begin to rule them. We see that in verse 6, in the way in which Eve's inner life shifts. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so sin is any, any thought, any word, or any deed that trades the glory and the beauty of God for something else that looks glorious and beautiful, but is not as glorious and beautiful as him. And that's why David, when, when David sinned in Psalm 51, David says, against you, against you, God, against you only have I sinned. We think, that's kind of weird. David took a man's wife. He slept with her. Then he gets the man drunk so that he will go sleep with his wife to cover up his sin. And that didn't work. Uriah is more honorable than David is. And so David has him killed. And David does all that and he knows all that, but he says to God, you only have I sinned. He knows that, he knows that the root of the sin problem is that, is it against, that it's against God. It's dishonoring to God. And it also means that, that any time we sin, any time that you and I sin against people, we are sinning against God. One Christian philosopher, Cornelius Plantinga, he said it this way. He said, sin offends God not only because it is an assault on God directly, as an impiety or blasphemy, but also because it assaults what God has made. It's not only assault on him directly, but it assaults what he has made. So, the, the horizontal effects of sin, they're never just that, ever. It always goes straight up to God. It strikes at his heart. It strikes at the way he designed the world to be. And so when we, when we look at sin and the fact that sin is God-centered, that he's the, the first one that we are offending, we're not minimizing people. 
We're not dehumanizing people. We're actually raising the stakes of our sin against people even higher. We're saying this is the status of who we sin against. They are God's and God's alone. And it is his glory that is offended. Another thing we learn is that not only has Adam and Eve's relationship toward God changed, but God's relationship toward Adam and Eve has changed. We find that God hates sin. God hates sin. He responds in judgment against it. One interpretation of verse 8, if you look at that, again Genesis 3, verse verse 8. One interpretation is that when God shows up to confront Adam in the cool of the day, it's not that God is feeling cool. Some make reference to the fact that the word sound is actually more akin to thunder and that when you pair the fact that the word day is used and day is used a ton of other times in Scripture that's used for judgment and then you look at the fact that there's a footnote on the word um, cool of the day which actually is wind what could be happening is that God is showing up more in a thunderous storm of judgment against sin. That he's, not, that he's not just out for, for a nice walk to hang out with his people, but that his, his presence comes in with a loud sound and Adam and Eve hide. And they experience fear, something they've never experienced with God. They've experienced guilt. They've never had that experience before. They experienced the shame of their sin. And God responds. Even if that interpretation is wrong, we still have the fact that God responds in what he says. He curses the serpent. He curses the earth and the man's relationship to it in his work. He judges Adam and Eve. And then, at the end of the scene, in the final verses, God is pictured as driving man out from the garden to wander in a sense of homelessness in a world that's broken. It was never that way before. Now there's this lingering sense of homelessness, the brokenness of the world. God judges men and women for their sin. He forcefully he casts them out. You're going to wander. He blocks them from access to the tree of life. And they die. And they keep dying. We get that in the genealogy that follows not too much longer. Instead of good, 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 death, 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 death. He died, he died, he died. The impact of Adam's sin sin is is stark and it actually gets bleaker. Before we go back to Genesis 3, we have to come to terms with the fact that the fall of Adam is the fall of every single human being who comes after him. The fall of Adam is the fall of every single human being who comes after him. And so the identity of humanity is never the same. The relationship has been broken and the identity has been broken. The sin of Adam and Eve extends to every baby who is born after Adam. Every baby that is born into this world after Adam experiences sin. This doctrine has been called original sin. Some call it inherited sin. And what it means is that from this point on in human history, no one is born morally neutral before God. We're not born with a blank slate. We're not born into the garden pre-fall. We're born outside of the garden after the fall. We are born sinners, and that it's at our identity. It's not a choice issue, it's an identity issue. The reason why we choose to sin is because, apart from Christ, we are sinners. That's why we sin. It's who we are as unbelievers. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5 and verse 18. There's a phrase that says, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. One trespass led to the condemnation for all In verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So one act of disobedience made, you've got to look at that word, made you a sinner. His one trespass condemned you. In other words, the act of someone else determined who you would be. The act of someone else determined who humanity would be. And of course, every single one of us is in on this. We all end up sinning like Adam. But in some mysterious way, we sin in Adam, in the one sin. We also sin ourselves. We are responsible. But Paul's point is that everyone is born in Adam and thus in sin. 
And we get too hung up sometimes on specific sins. We've got our list that we pull out of all of our specific sins. But that's actually the easy part of the problem. The easy part of the problem is the specific sins that, that we commit. The hard part is changing the sinner. You can only change sins if you actually change the sinner. And so we need something more than just better choices. We need a new nature. We need a new identity. We need a new birth. And that's John chapter 3. All of this is why Jesus said, in his conversation with Nicodemus, he said, you must be born again. You must be born again because you were first born in sin. You must be born again because you were first born in sin. And so think about the image of birth for a second. Lovely image. Can we all agree that, that we cannot give birth to ourselves? I cannot birth myself. There's got to be somebody else who has to do it. Preferably a woman, right? Jesus is saying that you must do something that you cannot do. He's saying that, Nicodemus, you must do something that you cannot do. You must be born again. That's why Nicodemus is confused. What in the world are you talking about? This makes absolutely no sense. And this means that if there is any hope for humanity, it's utterly outside of the human heart. It comes from utterly outside. You can't look inside yourself to fix yourself. It does not work. You have to look outside. And I was thinking, can, can Jesus actually say anything that's more un-American than that? We don't, we don't want to hear that. You know, we're told we can be whatever we want to be. We can choose our own destiny. We don't have to do what our fathers did. We can... Do what we want. We can be who we want to be. And Jesus is saying you can't. Your your identity as a sinner isn't switched on and off through any kind of human ability. You can't do it. Jesus even doubles down on the desperate state of the human condition. He uses the image of blindness. Like if you don't get that, well, here's another image for you. It's blindness. He says the reason you have to be born again is because you cannot see the kingdom. We cannot see the kingdom of God because we are blind to it. A blind person cannot see physical things. A blind person cannot see physical things. And fleshly people can't see spiritual things. It can't happen. There has to be a miracle. There has to be a supernatural work that takes place. So what Jesus is saying is that there is zero capacity, that there is zero capacity within fallen, unbelieving men and women to bring themselves back into relationship with God. You have no capacity to bring yourself into relationship with God. Zero. And that's why in the statement of faith it it says this. This is kind of a big sentence. That's the joy of statements of faith. Anyway. um, That man became inherently corrupt and utterly incapable of choosing or doing that which is acceptable to God apart from divine grace. With no recuperative powers to enable him to recover himself, man is hopelessly lost. That's what... The statement of faith says that's what the elders believe. And so the restoration of men and women back into relationship with God is not found anywhere inside of them. There's no natural ability in the will of man. There's no natural ability in the heart of man or the mind of man to change who they are. Paul says it. He says it in Romans 8, verses 7 to 8. For the mindset of the flesh, the mindset, the way the mind is set is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. It is unable to do so. Verse 8 says, those, who live are, those whose lives are in the flesh are unable to please God. And so the identity of fallen man is found in Adam, the sinner. That's where the identity is located. And it's not switched on and off by self-determination. If we are left to ourselves, we are powerless, we are dead, we are blind. And that's bad news. That's, that's really bad news. There, there is nothing worse than that. But there's good news. There is good news for, for all of the power, for all of the destructiveness, for all of the brokenness that the fall of man has brought to this world. It cannot compete. It cannot compete with the explosive power of the gospel. It cannot. The gospel restores. And so we, we can't just simply have a pessimistic outlook as Christians. The story of the world that the fall is telling is not the end of the story for the world. It has been changing one day in its, fullest, in its fullness, everything will be changed and has been changed by the person and by the work 
of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. As certain, as certain as the sinful event of Adam at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil changed our world, the redemptive event, the restorative event of Jesus at the cross on that tree has changed our world. As death, death came into the world through Adam, resurrection has come into the world in Christ. He's remaking a new creation of people. He's making a new humanity. And so we don't have to look at the world with despair. We don't have to look at the world with despair. We can look with hope. And that's the second point. The impact of the fall upon the believer's identity and relationship with God has been irrevocably changed. The impact of the impact of the excuse me, the fall. The impact of the gospel. There we go. The impact of, of the gospel has changed the impact of of the fall. It's been irrevocably changed. The identity of believers has been changed. The relationship to God with believers has been changed. And so therefore, we're to view our relationship with God and our identity through the gospel. And if you go back to the garden for a second, in the garden, God actually responds to Adam and Eve with more than judgment. This is what's so beautiful. God responds right there with more than judgment. He responds with promises. God responds with grace. This is what some have called the first gospel, verse 15 in Genesis 3, verse 15. When God is speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God is saying to Satan, he's saying to us that someone else is coming. He's saying that there is another Adam who has been promised that's going to undo everything that the sin has undone. He's saying that there is a promised seed, there's, there's an offspring, there is, there's a person coming who will be bruised a bit, but he will crush the serpent's head. God also makes an amazing promise to the woman. And this is awesome because right at the point of Eve's judgment in verse 16, in verse 16, God gives Eve her judgment. What's that? The pain of childbirth. All the pain that children can, can bring. In, in that is the promise. Right at the point of her judgment is the point of the promise. That's the way that the world will be fixed. Actually through the birth of a child. And so I was thinking that, you know, she may have just seen a little glimpse. And I kept thinking about that phrase that God said to her, what is this that you have done? She would have repeated that in her mind over and over and over again for who knows how long. But she would have had the promise that even, even in that, even in what she did, that God was going to do something. That even in her pain of childbirth, God was going to bring about someone that was going to change this whole thing. Someone that was going to defeat the serpent. Defeat Satan. And so, that great phrase, that mercy triumphs over judgment, did right there. It did right there in the garden. Mercy will triumph over judgment. Eve, mercy is going to triumph here. We also see something else in the chapter that gives us some other gospel signals. Notice what Adam and Eve do after they sin in verse 7. What they experience in verse 7. Seven. They experience the guilt and shame of sin in the knowledge of their nakedness. They know that something has changed inside of them. They know that something has changed. There's something different. And so what do they seek to do? They seek to cover it. They seek to cover it up. Something is wrong with me. I have to, I have to, I have to, cover, I have to cover myself. I have, to, I have to fix it. My identity has changed. There's, there's, there's something wrong. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. So they try to remake themselves. They try to change it themselves. But they can't fix this. And our self-righteousness, our self-rehabilitation, it doesn't work. Their self-made fig leaves, the fig leaves that they make for themselves, that isn't going to cut. That isn't going to cut it. That isn't going to cover it. But there's good news here in chapter 3. God... God makes better garments. God makes better garments. 
And how does he do it? He does it by death. Again, mercy triumphing over judgment. God actually does it through death. Verse 21. God sheds the blood of an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve. And so it's only God's provision that can cover our sin. Only God's provision can cover your sin. You cannot cover it yourself. No matter what, you can't do it. This is the genesis of the gospel. It's the genesis of the gospel in, in part. But Jesus, we have more than they had. We have the promised one. Jesus is the gospel in full. So let's get back to him in John 3. If you remember how Jesus spoke of the impossibility of sinners coming to him in and of themselves, if you remember uh, this, this Jesus view of the human sinful condition and sinful world that he's sent into is quite bleak. But in the same conversation with this religious leader, in the same conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says something else. If you look at verses 5 through 8, um, Jesus makes a parallel. He makes a parallel between the flesh and the spirit. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. So in other words, sinful human beings give birth to sinful human beings. But there's another birth. There is a spiritual birth. And that's something new. That's something different. That's something of, of God. We saw this earlier in John, if you remember, in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. This is said about birth. All who did receive him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so that's new creation. The Spirit recreates sinful people to be taken out of the lineage of the first Adam. He takes them out of the first Adam and he bursts them into the lineage of the second Adam. Bursts them into the lineage of Christ. And so the Spirit of Jesus, what does the Spirit do? We've heard phrases like this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, He brings freedom. Who the one sets free, Jesus says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Complete freedom. Jesus frees the whole human person from its bondage to sin. And what makes John 3.16 so stunning is that in a, in a conversation about how helpless the human condition is, God comes. The first part of the conversation shows that Jesus came into a world full of people who are utterly incapable, hopelessly lost and condemned. The second half of the conversation with Nicodemus shows that the reason the Son of God became a man and the person of Jesus was not to condemn people who deserve it, but to be for people what they cannot be for themselves, to be their Savior. The Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The world is under condemnation, but the Son of Man is coming to release them from condemnation. Man is unable. Man cannot get back up to God. So what does God do? God comes to man. God sends His Son. Sinners, we can't, we can't lift ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. We can't do it because there are no spiritual bootstraps. For one thing, we don't have any. But Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is lifted up in the place of sinners to die, to die for them, for the sake of all who believe. And so if, if, if all of the first stuff in the message, if all of the first stuff makes you feel completely inadequate, if it makes you feel stripped of hope, if it makes you feel broken, weak, the good news is, is that this is exactly who Jesus comes for. This is, these are the kinds of people Jesus Christ comes for. Think about the conversation outside of, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Usually when he's interacting with religious leaders, it doesn't go well for them. Usually Jesus mocks them. He might call them a few names. Usually there's some kind of conflict. But when Jesus comes to broken people, he draws near to them. We see it over and over and over again. He draws near the outcasts. He draws near the ones who know their sin. He comes to addicts. He comes to drunkards. He comes to people who rip people off. He comes to tax collectors. He comes to people that are confused um, and have all kinds of sexual issues, prostitutes, adulterers, 
That's who he converses with. That's who he comes for. He comes to the blind and he makes them see. He comes to the dead and he raises them. Jesus comes to the powerless. He comes to the helpless and he frees them. He changes them. Those are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus comes for. He comes for the sick. He comes to restore them. He comes to restore the relationship with God that was broken. He comes to give them a new identity. You're not just a tax collector. You're not just a drunkard. You're not just an adulterer. He gives them a new name. He, he changes them. In Romans 5, um, which I have alluded to, in Romans 5, 1, 1 to 2, Romans 5, 1 to 2, awesome picture of this reversal of the fall of what Jesus does for those that turn to him and trust him and recognize their helplessness. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access to relationship. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In verses 18 and 19, which I only read a part of a few minutes ago, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. As the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so the relationship with God that was lost at the fall gets restored when you trust Jesus. The identity of men and women that were completely flawed at the fall, it's restored when you trust Jesus. And so, if you don't know Jesus today, what do you have to have? You have to have nothing. That's what you have to have. You have to cry out and say, help. And Jesus comes and he'll help you. If you're a Christian today, if you've already trusted Jesus, we need to remember that our relationship with God is unhindered. We can have boldness and confidence right now. We can have boldness and confidence because God has pronounced a verdict over our life and the verdict is no condemnation. That's what, that's what is pronounced over your life. I love the way one translation puts it. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. It does not exist. There is no condemnation in your life whatsoever if you trust Jesus Christ. He has freed you from the condemnation. He took it. He took it at the cross for you. And so your relationship with him is fully restored. You don't have to hide anymore. Since we don't have to hide like Adam and Eve anymore. God accepts you. Jesus removes your guilt. He removes your shame. And if you remember, I said that the act of someone else determined who you would be. That was Adam. That was the fall. But that's not just bad news. The act of someone else determines who you will be. And that's Jesus. The good news of Jesus says that his act becomes your act. The past, present, and future of your life is no longer determined by you. It's determined by the work of Jesus. Your life becomes connected to his. Instead of being known as a person in Adam, you are now a person in Christ. Instead of being known as an unrighteous sinner, you are now a righteous saint. Yes, you still sin. You know that. But you sin as a son. You sin as one who's back into relationship with, with God. God no longer sees you in your sinful past, in your present, or in your sinful future. He sees you in His perfect Son. And that's 1 Corinthians 5.21. Probably my favorite verse in the Bible. God made Him. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. God credits the righteous record, the righteous act of Jesus to you, and you have this now. So, whatever you've done earlier this week, whatever you said to your wife that you shouldn't have, whatever thoughts went through your head that should not have been there, whatever sin might haunt you from the past that continues to haunt you in the loneliest times of the night, that maybe only a couple people know about, that's forgiven, that's cleansed, that's gone because of Jesus. And it's not just a, a legal thing. Justification isn't just God's a judge, verdict, and that's it. No, it's also a relational thing. We don't just have a relationship with a judge. We have a relationship with a father. Father God brings us back to him. He sends his son to gather sons. That's what he does. 
And God wants us to know him as Father. He wants us to experience that right now. And we have a hard time believing that the gospel is true. So we have to remind ourselves that this is true. We have to do that continually. I was thinking you may have woke up today with a lingering feeling that it was late. It wasn't. It may have felt late. It may have really felt, man, it's kind of late. It just feels, being at church today feels a little different. Well, the time changed. The time changed. You could, you could have believed all that you wanted. Um, you could have said, ah, you know what, my feelings are right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and believe that what was true yesterday was true today. It's not. The time changed. Right now, we have to live our lives in accordance with the new time change. That's the way we have to live. Our children probably don't, but we do. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel does. And so I remind you, when we think about this time change today, remind that we have to say, this is not true of us anymore, this is true, and I'm going to live according to that. God gives us a new outlook. He changes our mindset, the mindset of the flesh, which is hostile to God, the mindset of the Spirit is to come in, which is united to God in Christ. So use this time change to remind you, you may feel today or yesterday or tomorrow, man, I just don't feel like, I just don't feel like God's son. I feel, I feel sinful, and you are. But you know what? What's more true of you is that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ when you touch, when you, when you trust him, when you trust him, you are a new creation in, in Christ. And that's good news. The time has changed. There's, there's a difference between the fall and the gospel. A new event has happened that has changed you. So align yourself with that. Consider yourself, I'm dead to that. I reckon myself alive in Christ. Come awake. That's what the song calls us to. Come awake to this. Walk in this reality that will change our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. So remind yourself of that. And that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to remind ourselves of something. That's what we do when we take communion. We tangibly remind ourselves of what Jesus did. We tangibly take bread and wine that represents him and we remember that in his presence with us.
Corinthians 11, 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Father we thank you for all that you've done we're thankful that you loved the world that you sent your son into it oh God help us to remember the great truths of the gospel Holy Spirit, help us. Remind us this week. Encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.